I've always got, I have a slight phobia that at some point I'll have told the projectionist the wrong Bible passage, so I always look around. Um, okay, so this is uh, Faith and Deeds, James chapter 2, 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Let's just pray for Hugo before he comes to speak to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Hugo and for his faithful service to our church. And we pray for him as he shares your word with us now. Please take his words, make them your message to each one of us. And please give us ears eager to hear and hearts and minds eager to respond. Amen. Hello. Cognitive dissonance. Isn't that a good phrase? I love that, yes. They used to call it neurosis. Uh, but um, cognitive dissonance is slightly more accurate. The difference between what you think you think and what you actually think. Or the difference between what you think you think and the truth. That's cognitive dissonance. And actually we're pretty much all suffering from it. Particularly, I've discovered, people sometimes who come to church. You see, if I ask you what you believe, you'll probably tell me. If I then ask you what you just did with your rest of your, most of your life in the last 12 months, then we could ask the question, to what degree does what you just said and what you just did fit? And the question is, do you feel bad if it doesn't? Because if you do feel bad if it doesn't, you're a bit silly because all of us have the same problem, that we're very good at actually saying, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this, and doing completely different things. Because what we actually believe is not what we say we believe, but what we do we believe. Isn't that true? Because that's the stuff we really believe. You know, actually, if you spend the afternoon doing gardening, it's because you think doing gardening matters. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it, would you, unless you were being put under pressure by your 
wife or husband, to get the gardening done, or something like that. There could be different reasons. Then it would be not that you think that gardening matters, but you think that your wife or husband thinks that gardening matters. There are all sorts of reasons why we do what we do, but what we do is what we actually believe in the end. Isn't that true? So that's just an introduction. Thank you. 
when it becomes, well, let's just give you an example. There was a whole bunch of Israelites. They had reached the promised land, the edge of the promised land, and God said to them, go up because I'm with you. And they heard the word of God, and God said to them, go up into the land, I'm with you, it'll be fine. So they thought they better check whether it was right. So they sent some uh, spies and the spies came back and said there are giants in the land mm. so they all sat in their tent because the opposite of faith is hesitation you know that if you watch sports people because some days they can just do it because they don't hesitate they hardly think about it they just believe bang and it goes you know maybe cricket it's going to the or they kick a football over the top of their heads and they don't worry about the fact they're going to land. You might, might remember that feeling of never wondering what it feels like to land. That's called youth. Um, they hesitate, they don't go up, they stay in their tents. And God gets grumpy and says, well, if you won't do what I say, you're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness going around in circles. And then they go, the next morning, they go, want to go up so they then decide to now go up and God says I told you not to go up now yesterday I told you to go up today I told you not to go up so yesterday faith was going up today a day later faith is not going up 
Now that's getting complicated, isn't it? In both cases, you're doing something that fits the category. The second day, they're saying, but we do believe you now. We do believe you now. But if they really believed God, they would do what he says. That is the difference between what people think faith is and what faith really is. The difference between what people think faith is and what people, what it really is, is that people, some people think faith is doing something now. Always doing something now because God is there. But actually faith is doing what he says today, even if it's different from yesterday. That's faith. And you don't appropriate the grace of God, take advantage of what he's given, unless you do what is faith today. In other words, if you have faith today in God, you'll do what he says today. That makes sense? Let's take another example. Um, Abraham, uh, right back at the beginning of his life, was told by God, you're going to have babies. <laughs> Quite straightforward. And then he doesn't have babies. Him and his wife, they do all the things you're ne- that are necessary to have babies. Uh, I won't go into the detail, is it Sunday morning in church? Um, but they do those things and they don't have babies. So there gets a point in Abraham's life where his wife has passed the menopause and it's not likely, biologically, that he will have babies. Uh, he then tries all sorts of kind of ways to have babies, surrogacy and all sorts of other clever things, which these days are regarded as rather normal. But in those days were also normal, but in between has not been normal. Um, but basically he then comes up with all sorts of other plans, but he doesn't have babies by his wife, Sarah. And uh, at that point, he then goes and has a moan to God. He's in a tent, and he's praying, and he says, and and God speaks to him. as In his relationship with God, his friendship with God, he he suddenly hears God say again, you're going to have babies. In fact, you're going to have so many babies of babies of babies of babies. It's going to cover the whole world. It's going to be enormous. And In fact, it's going to be as many as the grains of sand on the seashore. And Abraham, in response to God, is, oh, I'm so fed up with this. Why do I keep getting this in my spirit? Why do I keep hearing this from you? Eliezer of Damascus, it even puts this in the text of scripture, that he says, I've got a cousin called Eliezer Eliezer of Damascus. And when I die, he's going to inherit everything that I have. Because I don't have babies. At which the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in that tent, is so real to Abraham in terms of relationship that Abraham goes, you just told me to come outside. So he's in the tent and he's been praying. God speaks to him and says, you're going to have babies, loads and loads of babies, and babies are babies and babies and babies and babies. And he says, no, I'm not anymore. That's gone. I've been believing in something that is not true, God. Maybe I'm just hearing it wrong. And then God says, come outside. So he comes out of his tent. Now, come outside is almost like fisticuffs, isn't it? Step out of the tent. 
So Abraham comes outside of the tent. And as he gets outside, it says he looked up, saw the stars, believed God, and it was credited to his righteousness. That's what the text actually says. It says that Abraham stepped out of the tent, saw the stars, now I'm sorry people, but seeing stars does not prove that you're going to have babies. But it was enough information for Abraham in terms of what God is like, to go, after all, God has said quite a long time, you're going to see as many babies as the sand on the seashore and as many babies as there are stars in the sky. Both of those two things he said. So it's like Abraham said that and goes, wow, I see a point God. And believes God. There is no evidence on the basis of the stars that he will have babies. His wife is still past the but he believes and it is credited in righteousness. Why? Because God goes, I like you. That's all it is. I like your heart. I like your response. I like that. So I will now give you righteousness, which you can't afford. But I'll just give it to you. Because actually, if you read the rest of the story of Abraham, he's not a great guy. He keeps making complete facts. He keeps trying to organize babies in other ways. And trying to stop his wife being, well, he tries to stop himself by being killed, by getting his wife to other people. All sorts of awful things which I don't really approve of. But God goes, since you responded like that, that's, that's fine. You are now credited as perfectly good. I'll tell you that because... This passage says that that bit related to a different bit of the Old Testament, which we now have to come to. Because a little bit later in Abraham's life, he's now got a baby, just so that you're clear. His name is Isaac, means laughter. So Abraham now has Isaac as a baby. Well, he's not a baby, he's grown up, he's a young boy. He's maybe a teenager. And uh, Abraham's praying again. Here's... God speak to him and say, take the boy, go up the top of Mount Moriah and sacrifice him on a pile of wood, which you're going to get the boy to carry on the way up. Excuse me? Doesn't sound Christian to me. Not an intelligent thing. Not, not something which I would, if, if, you know, if God says to me, take your son, your only son, I've only got one, take him up the top of kind of gibbet hill and sacrifice him, there's a part of me that's going to say, I don't think so. I think I'm going bonkers. But Abraham hears, and we actually now know it was God who spoke to him, because we've got a bit of hindsight. And Abraham does do this thing. He takes the son and takes him up the top of the mountain, and the son carries the wood to the top. And we're told in Hebrews that the reason that God, the reason Abraham does it is he believes a very simple truth. Which is that if he actually kills his son, God will bring him back to life again. That's what he believes. Because he can't see it would make any sense otherwise. But in the meantime, he's going to do exactly what he's told by God. And this passage says, because he did that, he was credited as righteousness. It was credited to him as righteousness. Of course, for some of you, you might not know, but he's just about to kill his son on the pyre, which is pretty close to child abuse. Uh, and, um, and then God says, stop. He says, Abraham, Abraham, stop. And there is a goat there. 
and the goat gets sacrificed instead of Isaac, and they come down the hill together. And you might sit down and say, why would God tell him to do that? Why is it a good idea? It is a bad idea. Please don't do it yourself. Don't do this at home. Um, but there is a weird thing called supernatural prophetic action which seeds the world with something. And if you can seed the world with something supernatural that reflects something that God is doing, it can make something else possible further down the road. And in this particular case, what God was doing through Abraham was seeding the world with something that would happen 2,000 years later when a father would take his son and put him and sacrifice him on the top of a mountain. And that sacrifice would actually be the grace we're talking about today, which is Jesus dying on the cross. Because the father in heaven was going to do that with his son. With a lamb that was provided by God, but in this case, the lamb of God, which was Jesus. Now you might sit there and say, but still, why did Abraham have to do it? Well, because the supernatural world isn't nice and simple and squeaky clean like all of ours, like we want it to be. It isn't like you come in here and you've got some nice rules and if you obey all the rules, then you have faith. And if you have faith, everything goes well for you in your life. It doesn't work like that. The Bible clearly says it doesn't work like that. It's much more complicated. It's supernatural. And sometimes a person 4,000 years ago needs to do something obeying the voice of God and trusting, and then it releases something for the whole world. That's the, the weird bit. So then you sit there and go, oh, okay, Hugo, well done. You've done... You've done faith and works. You've done the passage. Well done. There is a big problem with this passage. And that is, and I, I, I like you to notice this, that having done the passage, I've now done the seminar. I've actually done the seminar on the chair. But I think I might have missed the point. And the reason I might have missed the point is because this that quite often on Sunday morning or at a Christian seminar, we talk theory, but miss the point. And if you read the passage carefully, the point is this. If you meet somebody and they are naked and they aren't getting daily food, what are you going to do? That's the point. And it's no good going, bless you, stay warm and be well fed. That's the point. James isn't actually going, let me give you some theory about grace, and some theory about faith, and some theory about works. He is simply saying, if someone comes to you and they say, and they are naked, and they're not getting daily food, don't come out with religious platitudes. Feed them! people love the theory. I, I'm in a WhatsApp group and I put some pictures up of um, lots and lots of Christian men on it. And I put some pictures up of uh, some amazingly great work that we're doing in Kenya at the moment with some Christians who week by week are making a difference. Because people 
who aren't eating every day are eating it every day because Christians are doing it and Christians here are providing some of the funds. And I just put pictures up on this WhatsApp group saying, please pray for our friends in Kenya. And then there's a street kids project and I say, please pray for our friends in Kenya. So two or three people go, thank you, lovely pictures, bit of video, really lovely kids. Lovely to see them eating when they weren't eating before because they were living on the streets. Then someone wrote, isn't it a shame after all the years of aid that there is still poverty in Africa? And I'm going, typical British rubbish. Because the reason there's still poverty in Africa has got nothing to do with the amount of aid. It's actually got nothing to do with the corruption. It's got nothing to do with a whole bunch of other stuff. It's because the whole world system is out of skew. It's generally sin. And the reason these children are naked or these children are hungry is because somebody didn't feed them. That's all. Nothing else. It's not because there's... It's not like the, the, the food actually got stolen by somebody. It's because somebody didn't feed them. And mostly they didn't feed them because we didn't feed them. Because we could. And we can. Then, of course... I started to interact with my friends on my WhatsApp group and said, actually, it's nothing to do with that. It's because you know, they're poor, because the world system's all completely out of sync. But in the end, we have the resources to feed them. So why don't we just feed them and stop worrying about all that? At which the reply was, we don't want to waste anything. Now, some of you are going, quite, quite, so much waste, so much waste, 70% and it's all get wasted. Can I just say that God's principle of the way he works, go back to the microphone again. God's principle of the way he works is grace. Generally translated gift, but could easily be translated generous. You say, well, how do you know that's the way God's principle works? Dandelions. Dandelions are very, very successful. Some of you are very upset about that as you go around with your gardening and you start doing your stuff on your... Recently, I've discovered that dandelions are a good thing for bees. This helps with not having to do so much gardening. Particularly in May, you shouldn't take the dandelions up, even if you don't like them. But how many seeds does one dandelion produce? And how many dandelions come from that many seeds? I don't know the numbers, but there's an awful lot more seeds than there are dandelions. Why? Because the basic principle is generosity. Throw out as many seeds as you possibly can, and some of them will land, and that will be okay. Walk in Bourne Woods, where they do all that filming of amazing, sometimes awful films. Walk under the pine trees. How many pine cones get dropped by a pine tree? Well, I... I could just imagine a pine tree that goes, we don't, want any, we don't want any pine cones to land that don't produce another pine tree. In fact, you know, even in a pine cone, do you know how many seeds there are in one pine cone? I mean, there are so many seeds. How many of those, percentage-wise, how many seeds actually become a pine tree? Very, very few, because the principle is generosity. Chuck it out. Every single one of those seeds is not a waste. It's an experiment. Do you know, 
macroeconomics understands this already. It does. We educate all the children in this country, and some of them are horrible. Well, they're not really, because no children are horrible. But not every child takes full advantage of mass education, do they? They just don't. Some of them actually don't work hard on Friday afternoon. This is not a waste. It's an experiment. You actually don't know which bit of a child's education is going to land and become fruitful in their life. But if you keep chucking it out, generosity, if you keep giving people free GP surgeries, you keep giving people free education, you keep giving people child tax credits, some of it won't land. But most of it will. That's how it works. We know it works that way. The people who do economics know it works that way. That's why they do it because they actually want the return, and it works. It's a principle in scripture, it's a principle in creation. Generosity works. When Christ died on the cross, he died longing that none should perish and all come to the knowledge of truth. It was just pure generosity, total grace, giving you something that was far beyond anything you could possibly afford. It's grace. You don't even need, you could be as bad as Abraham, but if you can just believe God, God will go, I like you. It's okay. You sit there and say, well, so is it faith or works? Or, just do it, people. If you believe that God is good and kind and generous, Get in touch with him. Be his friend and do what he says. Then, of course, somebody says, well, Paul didn't agree with James. No, that's not true. Would, wouldn't you say that Romans was probably Paul's main book? I mean, there's lots of other good books that Paul wrote. But in the first couple of sentences of Romans, Paul says, I'm calling people from people everywhere, all the Gentiles, to the obedience that comes from faith, to the doing that comes from faith. I'm just calling you to do stuff. No, I'm not calling you to do stuff. I'm calling you to believe stuff and then work it out. Do it. Just do this stuff. And if God tells you to do something, do it. I remember when, a few years ago, I was living in North London in Barnet, and I, I kept having this feeling that God was telling me to walk around London and pray. And every time I thought it, I thought it was stupid. And then I mentioned it to a friend and he said, oh, I'll come with you. And then inertia is a terrible thing. Over the next year and a half, I didn't do anything just because there was other things to do and walking around London seemed as a really silly thing to do. And a little bit later, I was prayer walking one evening and just talking to God and he was my friend. And I said, so what do you want me to do, God? And I had a very strong sense that the Holy Spirit inside me, I just knew he was saying, there's no point in me telling you to do anything, because when I tell you to do something, you don't do it. And I went, oh. And I carried on walking, and I said, is that you, God, or is it just me thinking you're saying that? And then I got a really strong sense of, no, it's me. I tell you to do something, you don't do it, so what's the point in telling you? So I said, well, what, what have you told me to do that I haven't done? He said, I'm not telling you, because if I told you, then you wouldn't do it, because you don't do it, because I tell you. And I went, I, I was having this conversation. And you're sitting there going, I don't have conversations with God like that. Well, start talking to God 
and you'll find that God talks back to you, but it will be in that place where your conscience goes. Not a voice, just in your conscience. It's going, what I feel is this. It's like someone spoke to you, but they weren't there. It's like you got a text, but it didn't go ping. And you thought, hmm. And I walked on. I said, I'm not going home until I'm sure what this is. I walked for about another hour and a half, and about an hour and a half later, I said, I'm really not going home until you tell me what I didn't do. And then it just dropped into my head. Remember a year and a half ago, you said you would walk around London, mentioned it to Phil, and Phil said he'd come too, and you didn't do it. So I'm not telling you to do something, because actually, I really do want you to do it. And I went, OK, I'll do it. So I got home. In those days, you had to go home to use the telephone. Very strange thing. Uh, and I picked up the telephone and rang Phil and said, I've just had this really strong thing I have to do. He said, I'll come with you. I thought, oh. um, so I t- mentioned it in church and 30 people decided to walk around London and we talk- rang a whole bunch of churches so we had places to stay. When I say walk around London, we lived just inside the M25. So we were going to walk around the M25, not on the M25, round near the M25, on footpaths. And we arranged churches to meet in for prayer meetings. And here's a simple thing. Do you believe that prayer works? Christians, yes. How many of you pray all the time then? <laughs> so, cognitive dissonance. Really interesting. When you say, I'm going to spend a whole week praying, walking 25 miles every day and praying, everybody goes, what am I going to pray? Once you start walking, you've got lots of stuff to pray. You pray loads of stuff, and then stuff happens. On one, we actually did it seven years in a row in the end, 60, 70 people in the end, walking around London with us. Uh, stat- stopping in churches. On about the fourth year, we had decided that we would pick up things if, and just to find out if God was telling us to do stuff or pray stuff as we walked. And uh, one person picked up a, uh, a, an empty can of beer and they took it with us on the walk. And sadly that night we were staying in a Methodist church. We put, brought it in and put it on the side as a symbol of one of the things we wanted to pray about. And this chap who was the, the person who ran the Methodist church came in and said, what have you brought that in here for? He said, well, it's a prayer thing. I don't want any of that stuff in here. I'm going, it's a prayer thing. Uh, have you been drinking? No, no, we haven't. No, it's just a prayer thing. Um, anyway, he misunderstood. The next night, we were in a Baptist church, so they didn't mind. Um, <laughs> uh, and we laid out this thing on the ground uh, with kind of places to put all these symbols and we started a prayer meeting. I had a room which about three or four times as many people as there are here now. And we had a prayer meeting. And we were telling people about the things which we'd felt the Lord telling us to pray during the day. And then everybody praying. When I saw the beer can, I said, I don't know, but I just feel that tonight the Lord is saying something about that beer can. That maybe there's somebody in this room. And maybe your husband is an alcoholic. And they've been getting worse and worse and worse. And they're really getting to the end. And you've come here actually desperate. And that that beer can is there to help us just to ask you to come forward for prayer. And I don't know what will happen to your husband. But I just want, I think the Holy Spirit wants you to know that God the Father loves you and sees your situation. At which this woman wailed. Suddenly just wailed. Ah! Uh, So some people prayed with her. After the event, the prayer event that night, 
she and her friends came over and she just said, two nights ago I mentioned to the church that my husband was getting to the end, that he was just sitting at home, that his liver's failing, the doctors were saying his liver's failing, he just wouldn't stop drinking. And I said, I don't think God cares at all. And uh, they, he, he said, she said, my friends took me in the car to an event up in London to just get me out of the house and to put their arms around me. So I went into this church and they had a big time of worship and someone stood at the front and they said, I think there's somebody here and your husband is an alcoholic and they're dying and God just wants to say, I love you and I've seen the situation, I want to help you. Would you come forward? And she said that when I heard that, I got up and I started going forward, as did several hundred other people. And somebody met me at the front and they prayed for me a bit and I came back and everybody said, wasn't that amazing that God should have seen you there tonight? My friend said that. And I said, I was just one of many hundreds. I'm sure it was somebody else God was speaking to. So tonight, she said, I've come here just again to get out of the house. And it's just repeated. And I'm the only one in the room now. And I suppose what I'm saying is this, that faith is doing something that God tells you to do. And God just loves that. And you say, well, how am I ever going to be told by God? And I tell you this, become his friend. Become God's friend. Because that's what the passage says. It was credited to him as righteousness, Abraham. And he was called the friend of God. You can be a friend of God. You can actually... Okay, there are the, the, the big rules. Keep the big rules. That's called faith. But there's the specific which says, tell this group of people that there's somebody here whose husband is dying of alcoholism and I love them and I've seen them. Tell them. So I did. And it changed somebody's life. It was special. It was supernatural. It was beautiful to see this lady cry. I have no idea what happened because I walked on, on that prayer walk. But even if that was the only thing that happened because of Walk the Walls, that thing which we walked around London, I would have said the whole thing was precious and special. So, faith without works is there. If I had said to you after that meeting, I believe God told me this, but I had done nothing, what good would it have done? If I believe that God is generous and gives generously to me and to you, not just Christ on the cross, but, you know, if you, how many of you in this room believe that if you take all, you know, the stuff you've got, like your money and your things and your time, and you shovel it out to God, you give it to God, he will show more to you. How many of you believe that? You give to God, he will give to you more. Don't you believe that? Then why don't you give more? Just give more, because you get more. I don't mean to me, I just mean give more. Wouldn't that mean, if you really believe it, just give more, because you'll get more to give more. If we believe it, do it. 
that's enough, you don't have to do anything. True. But if you believe it, you'll do it. Because that's the outworking of believing, isn't it? Cognitive dissonance. We've all got it. If we could get rid of it, we'd have a much funner life. If you believe that you have an indestructible life, you can give it away for Jesus and you will find your life. If you keep trying to preserve your life, you'll lose it. If you give it away, you'll find it. And you'll get more and more and more and more and more and more. And even if you die, if you believe in him, yet you'll live. Even that you can't lose. Isn't that amazing? That means that even if your loved one died in Christ recently, it's okay. It's really okay. They really are in a better place. It's not just the platitudes from the funeral, yeah? Shall we stand if we can? If you can stand, let's stand and we'll pray. Oh, to be a friend of God. Father, I ask now that you would open heaven over us so that we know that it's a free gift from you to be your friend. It's a free gift that you paid for, that heaven is open over us, that we can hear your voice and trust you and do whatever you say. Thank you. Just aware that some people in the room have been going, I just don't know where God is at the moment. Life's just been, I pray and I just don't hear anything. This is the word of God to you. Take a bit more time. Slow down a bit more. And what you instinctively think is God just checking it against scripture, but what you instinctively think is God, probably is God. Let him tell you to do something little and do it, and something else little and do it, until you regain your confidence. Confidence is with faith He wants to build your faith. You only need a little to move a mountain, but he wants to build your faith. Because when you have faith, you'll do what he says.
feel that uh, at least one of you here has regularly said, I've done all the right stuff, I've gone to church, I've done all that stuff, but I never, I never feel God's presence. You don't need to feel it. It's not a feeling, the presence of God. He's already with you. The only reason you can't feel the difference is because it's not different. He's with you, he's around you. Just do what he says. And if that means somewhere in your conscience you suddenly get a prompting, do what he says. You'll begin to see the fruit of that. Father, I pray particularly for those who've lost loved ones recently, that where their spirit and their heart has become tight and sad, that you'd send your Holy Spirit of love and of grace upon them to, uh, so that they can get soft again and hear your voice again, so that they can cry what they need to cry and say what they need to say. And Father, none of us actually believe what we say we believe because we can tell from our lives. But I pray, Father, that you would help us get what we do closer to what we say we believe so that you can bless us more and release more of grace through us into the lives of others. And there's something else that someone's, God's saying to one of you. You know, you don't need to do that to impress me. It's killing you at the moment, what you're doing. You don't need to do it to make me love you. And if you believe what I'm saying to you today, you will stop doing it. You will stop doing what you've been doing to try and make me love you. You'll just stop doing it because you will trust me anyway. Once you've stopped, I may start it again. Because I may say to you, why don't you take it up again? But it will be free will, not you trying to earn anything. And only in that place will it be of value in the kingdom of God. going to sing a hymn now and it's the servant king we're not going to sing the last hymn we're just going to sing the servant king just stay standing if you can as we sing this song and right at the end I'm going to pray a bit more and then hand back to Andy
tell us what works you want us to do because we believe in you. And you'd help us to be your friend so that we'd hear your voice every day. Every day. Please sit down. And, uh, if something I've said during this talk uh, really triggers you deep down and you're struggling with something, don't go home without asking someone to help you. Uh, just say, please help me, and then tell them, and then let them pray with you. That would be great. I do need to say one thing before I finish, and that is, thank you for the gift for Zambia that you sent through after I was here last time. And thank you for those of you who have decided to sponsor children with us in Zambia uh, and other places uh, since that time. 
really, really grateful. And I'm sure the Lord will bless you for all that you have done to take those who aren't eating every day and get them eating every day. God bless. So I'm just going to invite people to stay here if you would like prayer. Otherwise, we'll go out for coffee um, at the back. Ian's going to project a... No, that's fine. The worship group will be able to play. Um... Oh, you can project. Okay. That's fine. Thank you. Yeah, there's a song that will play in here if you want to just stay and reflect. Um... And that gives the worship group a chance not to play as well for once and also come and pray if they would rather too. But for this week, may the love of the Lord Jesus draw you to himself. May the power of the Lord Jesus strengthen you in his service. May the joy of the Lord Jesus fill your hearts and the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son and Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you all always. Amen. Amen.